it's everywhere. If you're not able to do your homework because you lack access or a device, um, you are in that homework gap. We're bringing you another episode in our special Community Broadband Bits podcast series, Why NC Broadband Matters. I'm Lisa Gonzalez with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance in Minneapolis, Minnesota. NC Broadband Matters is a North Carolina nonprofit. Their mission is to attract, support, and champion the universal availability of affordable, reliable, high-capacity Internet access, which is necessary for thriving local communities, including local businesses and a local workforce, so each can compete in the global economy. The group has created the North Carolina chapter of CLIC, the Coalition for Local Internet Choice. We are working with NC Broadband Manners to produce this series focusing on issues affecting people in North Carolina that also impact people in other regions. Christopher recently went to North Carolina for the Reconnect Forum, organized by the Institute for Emerging Issues at North Carolina State University in Raleigh. While he was there, he had the chance to interview Dr. Latricia Townsend of the Friday Institute for Educational Innovation and Amy Huffman from the State Department of Information Technology. Dr. Townsend and Christopher discussed the homework gap, not only in North Carolina, but in communities all across the United States. Dr. Townsend describes the characteristics of the homework gap and explains how it affects students in all types of communities, both urban and rural. Then he talks with Amy, who provides some interesting details about the data that her office has collected about the homework gap and its pervasiveness across the state of North Carolina. She talks about efforts the state is taking to try to bridge that gap and what local communities are doing. Now here's Christopher with Dr. Latricia Townsend from the Friday Institute for Educational Innovation and Amy Huffman from the North Carolina Department of Information Technology's Broadband Office. Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm here still at the uh, North Carolina State University where I'm at the Institute for Emerging Issues, where we're doing the Reconnect for Technological Opportunities program, uh, part of a wonderful series of programs that the, uh, the university is doing. And I'm speaking with Dr. Latricia Townsend, who's the Director of Evaluation Programs uh, at the Friday Institute for Educational Innovation, which is housed here at NC State. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I really appreciate you taking time today to to talk with us. I, when I started uh, researching you a little bit, I didn't even notice that you were here at the uh, State University. Uh, why don't you tell me a little bit about what the uh, what the Friday Institute for Educational Innovation does? Sure. So the Friday Institute for Educational Innovation is a research arm of the College of Education, and so we aim to impact educational research, educational practice, and educational policy in the state of North Carolina. And what does that mean right now? In 2020, what does that mean? Okay, so we actually um, work in a number of ways. And so we have one group that looks at providing professional learning opportunities for teachers, administrators, and others across the state. Mm -hmm. And then my group, the Friday Institute um, Research and Evaluation Team, better known as the FIRE Team, we actually conduct educational research on a number of issues. And one of the issues near and dear to us is the digital divide or the homework gap. Okay. What is Friday? Where does that come from? So it actually is named after um, William Friday. I thought so that would be it. So it's a person's yep. name. <laughs> <laughs> I was just uh, reading some history books, totally unrelated to this interview, and it was talking about people named Buick, Chevrolet, and I always wonder where those names come from. They're all named after people. We all knew about Ford, but most of us don't know about Olds or the other folks. So not too surprised to hear that. So let's talk about the homework gap. What, what is the homework gap? So the homework gap um, is a tale of two stories. And so 
70% of teachers actually assign homework that requires the internet to complete it. The homework gap exists um, when there is a student who does not have access to either the internet, um, reliable service to the internet, or they do not have access to a device to actually complete that homework. And this is rural, urban, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. If you're not able to do your homework because you lack access or a device, um, you are in that homework gap. Right. I think maybe the only place that may not have it is um, Davidson, North Carolina, where um, the group E2D, the uh, Eliminate the Digital Divide group, said that they did get devices and low-income programs to everyone in the school. Um, so maybe there's a place, but probably not. <laughs> it is. It is remarkably amazing. And actually, I, I think this is one of those things that – it's really an indictment of all of us that we've allowed us to get to 2020 while um, not having broadband in every child's home where they can use these devices. And what you and I are going to talk about is, I think, why that's so important for people who might think of it more as a convenience or a nicety, uh, even if the, um, even if people believe that we all need high-quality Internet access. They may not understand what a disadvantage it really is in today's climate to not have that as a student. When we think about school, we often hearken back to our own memories of what school was like for us. And so I can remember myself being in an Algebra One class, having my own textbook, and my teacher assigning problems for me to go home and do. So I would take my own textbook, which was wrapped in a brown paper bag. <laughs> yes. I had to make sure that I wrapped my book to really protect it from damage. I remember that too. And so I would take my book home and often I'd be assigned questions one through 54 odd. I would do my assignment on notebook paper. I would then go back to class and we would review those um, problems and then continue moving forward. Those days are really gone. And so often within schools, textbooks are very limited. The way things have moved now, most content is available on these learning management systems. So Canvas, Blackboard, Moodle, and so forth. And so teachers put all the content that students need in these on these particular platforms. They put assignments there. And it's the expectation that students would be able to access those both in school and outside of school. They'd complete their assignments and then they would upload their assignments to these learning management um, platforms. And so if students don't have access to the internet and or to devices, it puts them at a grave disadvantage compared to others. Now, I want to I ask you a, a question that, that I started as a snarky response to the 70% stat, that 70% of teachers are assigning homework that requires internet access in the home to do. What are the other 30% doing? Like, I, in some ways, it's sort of, are these mostly uh, school districts that are in very low income areas? Or do you have a sense of, of what the 30% is that aren't doing it? I think it? it sometimes is content specific. Mm -hmm. So if you're thinking about some of your elective courses, Although art could be done online, a lot of things, um, it just would not require homework mm -hmm. in that fashion. And so I would say that would be it. I will say um, in terms of solutions, there are some districts that are moving into technologies that allow you to really cache or put into memory um, information so that students still have access to material once they leave. Mm -hmm. And so I think many are aware of some of the issues that are, that are really pervasive around this issue and they're trying to come up with solutions. Um, it's just not enough fast enough. Okay. And so one of the implications of that then is that um, probably almost all school districts have teachers that are assigning homework that requires an internet connection. 
or assumes an internet connection at home. I would say that would be correct. Yes. How are schools dealing with the device issue? You mentioned it's not just a matter of having home internet access or potentially access outside of the school more specifically, but but also a device. How are schools dealing with so the devices? So I think depending on the district, um, many of them are accessing their textbook funds. They are accessing um, federal, local, and um, foundational grants to actually purchase devices for their students. And so in some cases, districts have moved to -to one-to-one, so they are able to assign a device to students, either an iPad or some type of tablet or an actual laptop. And so in those cases, students have access to those um, devices round the clock. Um, In cases where um, school districts can't necessarily afford that, there are um, community partners that at times will provide devices. Um, So I I would say there's a mixture of how they're really approaching that. Mm One of the things I didn't mention about your biography is that you're particularly focused on STEM, the science, technology, uh, engineering, and math. Is that right? Yes. Okay. What is it like in in these subjects? You mentioned I I did the same experience with with the math uh, the book covered in the paper bag and, and doing the assignments at home, mm-hmm. although more often on the school bus or something <laughs> like that. Um, what is it? Is there a greater impact, do you think, um, in terms of, um, you know, doing science? For instance, I just think about, I think our goal is not just that they do their problem sets, but that they're inspired to learn on their own. And, and it seems like it's a major loss of the creativity and the, the, uh, the fact that most engineers I know who are really good, they're driven to just really figure things out on their own. And without that connection, in the home, it seems like you'd be losing something. Right. I definitely think you lose something. And I think we've also moved. So within classrooms, if you think about science, and I'm actually a former science teacher myself, I taught chemistry for a number of years. And initially, we think about doing experiments in the classroom. But now there is a lot of opportunity for students to actually do online simulations. Mm -hmm. And so we do lose something if there is an online simulation that a student isn't able to access. So I can think for myself, thinking about gas laws in chemistry, when you start thinking about, if you're thinking about gases and you think about how does a gas, how is a gas impacted if I change its volume as well as its temperature? I'm able to really access these modules or these simulations that actually allow me to see that in a way um, that I necessarily wouldn't be able to see in a Mm -hmm. face-to-face classroom. Um, So I think um, when you think about um, science in particular, it does put students at a disadvantage if they're not able to access um, content such as that. And so kind of circling back, when we think about these courses that teachers develop, these online platforms for students. And so rather than this having this flat, static textbook where um, students just have a, a discrete amount of text, they're able to add content from anywhere in the world, anywhere that exists on the Internet, put it in their course. Um, and some of what they put in the in their course would be some of these demos that would not come to life if you just had that flat textbook. Sure. Yeah, I, I was thinking about also biology. I, I, I would love to learn biology again with they the have online several animations. online um, dissection um, mm-hmm. programs that would be available. Right. Were you a teacher when when this transition was happening? Um, I would 
say somewhat at the tail end. I actually left the classroom in 2006, but the okay. school that I was at, we actually had quite a bit of technology. And so we had, um, I guess, an online lab system. We had a series of probes that we could use and be able to upload that data. Mm -hmm. um, so it was just on the cusp of that becoming something that was important, and it's only grown since then. Mm-hmm. One of the things that, that I've heard occasionally, and I actually feel like I'm more sensitive to generally, and wondering if people are thinking this, is this idea that um, everything was better when we used books anyway. I mean, I own 2,500 books. I'm a huge book fan. I also read a ton on, on a reading device now because I can highlight it and have it in the cloud, which is lovely. But there's, a, there's this reaction, and I think of it sometimes as a grumpy Gary reaction of like old guy who's just like, why do we even need this new tech stuff? What's, what, why, isn't, why wasn't the old way good enough? And we covered a little bit of that, but I, I wonder if there's more there. I think the old way is good, and it was good. There are many techniques that you still would utilize today. Um, but I think we're training students to be able to go into the world of work. And when students go into the world of work, I promise you a lot of what they're using really depends on their digital skills. So if we don't make school something that mirrors what they're going to experience when they go in the workforce, we're putting them at a disadvantage. And our students in North Carolina are not going to be ready within North Carolina, across the nation, or if we think about globally. Mm-hmm. And so speaking about North Carolina, I'm curious, do you have a sense, um, how is rural North Carolina in particular, um, you know, impacted by this? Are there, um, are the teachers having to just work extra to try and figure out alternatives to the online or are we just leaving kids behind? What, what's happening? I would say it varies. And I will say, um, when we think rural, um, one of the things that we need to think about is also access. So there are people who want to have access to the internet, but no matter um, how hard they try, they cannot because they're not providers or the terrain in their area doesn't allow them to have access. Mm -hmm. And so we do need to make sure that we remember that. I would say um, those teachers are being creative. Um, some of them as I said, are using technologies that allow them to store things so that students can access them once they're offline. Um, others are using a mixture of new tech and low tech just to make sure that they're meeting student needs. Um, when did you join the, uh, the Friday Institute? I've been there since 2008, September so of 2008. I, that's roughly around the time I got into this field myself. And I, I just have to ask you, when you think back at the way, like, what were you thinking of in 2012, maybe? Just were you thinking like, wow, in 2020, we'll have solved a lot of these problems. Probably we won't have like so many people unable to access the technology. I so I think you bring an important point. So when I first joined the Friday Institute, the project that I worked on was called Impact. And so Impact was um, a project that looked at closing the digital divide. It looked at providing devices as well as internet to schools so that they would be able to really meet the needs of students. And so these schools that were participating received funding to purchase laptops. The big thing then was to purchase smart boards for the classroom. They also worked with their school district to get additional access points to really amplify the internet within their buildings. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I really thought things were looking up. 
I guess for me, thinking about the schools that were engaged in that project, when I think about where some of them are now, um, we give people money, but the thing about technology is that it ages so quickly. And so when you once were flush with materials and resources, just wait a few years and then now it's dated. Um, And without continual funding to be able to really move things along, um, you still are back where you were. Mm -hmm. Um, And so thinking about when I first came 12 years ago, I really thought that things would be much further than they are. Right. Well, the last thing I want to ask you is, again, a, sort of a, a question that I feel like some people deal with, which is the schools have to figure out how to get these devices into kids' hands. And when I was that age, I wasn't as responsible as I am now, in part because I've broken so many things and I've learned about it. Um, how do kids react when they get these devices? Is it, is it something that, that they value um, or is it something that they're frequently breaking and, and the school district has to deal with that? Overall, I've seen students value it. Students have access to devices. Most of them have phones mm-hmm. um, or their parents have phones. There was a phone in the house. Um, in a survey that we did um, for the Broadband Infrastructure Office, 98% of the respondents said that they had access to a mobile device. And it was the preferred way to access the Internet. Okay. So I think students... If you provide a device for many students, they're digital natives. And so the first thing they do is they expect it to be touchscreen. And so you start seeing their little (laughs) fingers flick and they could be as young as three years old, you know, going through. So I think there's a sense of I know what a device is. I'm excited to have it. Um, I think it's doing some digital literacy training to get students to use, to move from using technology just for entertainment purposes, but then to start using technology to really be productive and help them in their work. Um, I would say with schools, when they have these devices, there's always an insurance program that's available. And often um, one of the costs that is passed along to Um, participants in these programs is the um, insurance cost. And so for students to buy in and get the device, they do pay a nominal fee for that insurance cost. Mm -hmm. um, And that allows um, districts to do replacements if necessary. I have to think, and I'm, I'm really heartened. This is the the last question I just wanted to ask you about, because you mentioned the caching. And I think that's, it's good to hear because I just imagine some of the kids, particularly that are on DSL where it's less reliable, I can imagine situations in which they may do the homework and then lose it before it gets saved. And when I do that through my own fault and not saving a, a document that I'm working on, I have to re- there's a few things more <laughs> infuriating than having to rewrite your own work. Right. So I, I would say there's many, um, there are actual technologies that are out there that allow caching on these devices. Um, they also encourage students to work offline. And so creating a Microsoft Word document rather than using Google Docs mm-hmm. and then pasting that material in once they get to school. And so teaching students to do workarounds um, so that they're able to continue to move their process forward. Great. Thank you so much for your time. It's, You're it's, welcome. It's, it's amazing. It's, it feels like a whole new world learning. And I have a four-year-old, so I'll be, I'll be seeing this soon. Yes. <laughs> but it's fascinating. <laughs> Thank you for having me today. Here I am talking with Amy Huffman. Amy is the Digital Inclusion and Policy Manager at the Broadband Infrastructure Office in North Carolina's Department of Information Technology. Welcome to the show. 
Thank you so much for having me. Let me use your, ask you to use your line then. What do you do? I work to close the digital divide in North Carolina. That's great. And and I think it's it's worth noting North Carolina is getting um, well, a lot of praise, I think, from other states in terms of um, of the many different ways it's approaching the digital divide. Well, thank you. I think that that's because we've had a lot of wonderful people that have come before us and done a lot of great work. And we've had continued sustained leadership and we have great leadership now. And so tell me, what is your specific focus within the broadband infrastructure office? Sure. I work mostly on digital inclusion and policy. Okay. And we're going to talk about the homework gap. So for people who haven't come across that term before, what, what is that? So the homework gap was a term that was coined by FCC Commissioner Jessica Rosenmarshall, um, and she calls it the cruelest part of the digital divide. Um, but it's basically when kids are assigned homework that requires internet access, and they go home and they don't have internet access. What kind of patterns do you see in the, in the homework gap as you're looking at, at it in North Carolina? Um, so a few years ago, we did a pilot study with the Friday Institute of, at NC State University um, to survey North Carolina's K-12 households to find out who is affected by the homework gap. Um, our survey, about 10% of our respondents responded that they didn't have access at home. Um, the cause for most of them was cost. About 63-ish percent said it was cost. Um, And it had some interesting impacts on their daily lives. So, for instance, parents that didn't have access at home felt less comfortable helping students at home. Um, What we found in our survey and what we know to be true in terms of the digital divide in North Carolina is that this cuts across rural-urban communities. It cuts across the whole state. Um, No, frankly, no county is safe from the homework gap. No city is. (laughs) Um, It affects Um, all communities in North Carolina. We estimate probably based on our survey response and national data, um, we'd love to have a great um, robust data set that we don't have that right now, but we estimate that anywhere between 10 and 20 percent of students across the state are affected by the homework gap. I'm really struck by the results of that study because uh, if you look at Pew Research or others, um, there's a significant doubt as to how much cost is the main issue. And uh, you found that it was a main issue, which reflects the experience of just about everyone that does work in this, but doesn't really reflect the uh, experience of the surveys. Uh, And so I'm curious, did that strike you as odd at all? Or do you have any sense of why that's happening? I wouldn't, I actually think it confirmed what I assumed would be the case um, based on what we had heard from across the state and from people dealing with the homework gap in their communities that a lot of the folks that didn't have access might actually have access at home but can't afford it um, or don't have a meaningful device or um, don't have the skills. So it wasn't that shocking. We did actually, the second biggest reason why folks didn't have access at home was availability. So there is still a significant need in our state to make sure that everyone has the access itself. Um, But cost, you know, out trumped that by almost three to one. Mm-hmm. Um, are, you, are you familiar with what they're doing in uh, Michigan around the curriculum that they've been developing? I am. I think it's really, really exciting. Um, and I love seeing that Merit's taking the lead. I think that's great. And they're the survey they put out is really, really great. We've looked at that and um, the the speed test tool that they're wor- working on or used to collect data. I think is really interesting, and we're we're looking at some doing something similar here. That's it is really terrific, and I just I wanted to say that because I feel like 
those are the only two states I know that have really taken action around the homework app to try to get some of this data. Yeah. You and in, in, in Michigan, I don't, um, other others recognize that it's a problem, but I. I feel like we don't really have a, a sense of the broad contours of it. We don't. And um, the reason we're interested in the data itself is, you know, data is only so good as what it leads to. Um, we want to make smart data-driven policy decisions. We want to make decisions that are precise and and um, actually help the people on the ground. And we don't feel like we can do that if we don't have a robust understanding of where the homework app is, who it affects, and why. And so what are you doing? What, what can the state of North Carolina do to try to close the homework gap? Governor Cooper included in his budget $5 million that would be dedicated to closing the homework gap in the state. Um, that hasn't gone through, but something like that, creating a dedicated fund that um, could help communities, schools, um, libraries, what have you, close the homework gap in their communities would be really great. Do you have a sense of how that would be spent? Yes, we think we would... Um, We'd give the communities opportunities to decide on what they need in their communities. They'd need to do a survey and see who doesn't have access and doesn't um, and does. But um, then they'd get the opportunity to decide what tools need to be implemented to close the homework gap in their communities. We'd have a couple different options for them. Okay. And then another thing we're working on, um, we received a grant from the Institute of Museum and Library Services two years ago now um, in collaboration with the State Library here in North Carolina. And through that grant, we're working to equip local librarians to become leaders in closing the homework gap in their communities. Um, we see libraries, schools, um, healthcare organizations as trusted resources in their communities, um, particularly libraries. And we know lots of folks go to them anyways looking for help with homework or a place to do their homework. And so it seemed a natural fit to equip them to, to cl actually have the tools cl to close the homework gap in their communities. Um, so through that pilot program, we're working with four communities, Robison County, Caswell County, Hyde County, and Mitchell County. And they are, um, the libraries there are partnering with a local middle school and delivering digital literacy training to parents and their children um, for eight workshops. And the students get to take home a hotspot for the school year with which they can do their homework. And we specifically partnered with schools that already had a one-to-one -one program, so they'd have a computer in the home. But if they complete um, six out of the eight trainings, they also get to take home a, um, a refurbished device from one of our um, device refurbisher partners crammed in. Wonderful. The so uh, there's two components that um, that you've been mentioning. I think one is the the access in the home, and the other is the device. If we ignore the device for a second and just pretend that's not a problem, which your program may be helping already, what what for those people who would say we have libraries, we have McDonald's that has free Wi-Fi, why is there a homework gap that we should be worried about? How do you respond to that? Sure. So first, libraries aren't open 24 hours a day. Um, and we actually have heard several stories of children and parents sitting outside libraries after hours when it's closed. And yeah, you can imagine the safety issues or how cold it might be if there's weather. Um, we also know that many folks in our state have trans like have transportation challenges. Mm -hmm. And so they may not have a car or be able to drive to McDonald's or the library. Um, and then many folks in our state don't have to do those things. So um, I don't know that we have to be telling people that don't have to do those things or do have to do those things to uh, get the access that they, that's what they should have to do. Right. I mean, I also I've heard the stories of 
the frustration of someone having driven 30 miles and returned home only to find that there is another part of the assignment and they have to go back to that location again. I just, whew, you know, I'm, I have a pretty good living in the city and this it's the this, this stress we don't need to introduce into these families. Absolutely. There's so many barriers that and challenges that children face day to day anyways. Um, to complete their homework or um, to thrive within their school system. This doesn't need to be one of them. So what are the, what are the next steps then that, that can be done beyond uh, what's already been happening? Sure. Um, well, here in the state, we want to continue to encourage local communities to um, implement programs that address the homework gap in their communities. But we also think we as a state should be leading this as well. Um, Funding is needed in order to close the homework gap, but also smart policy is as well. Um, The federal government could also dedicate more research or time or funding to closing the homework gap. Um, There's many things that they could do as well. I was really disappointed that Angela Seifer had to leave the event early today because of the discussion at the very end that the state would like to see that every community has uh, its own digital inclusion plan. And um, the uh, Institute on Emerging Issues is working with the electric cooperatives and and your state agency, as I understand it, then um, to help communities develop these digital inclusion plans. That seems quite exciting, frankly, in terms of, of, I think, putting the responsibility on the local units to plan, but also having a plan for developing all these plans. Absolutely. We think it's really exciting. And in in our work, we know that communities know what they need best. You know, they know their citizens. They know what's needed. And so um, for them to create their own plan and then to have some potential resources to begin implementing those plans, we think is really, really exciting. There's a, one of the, a question that I like to I think about. We did this this video series, this crude animation with badly voiced over characters about a rural scenario. And in it, um, a former colleague of mine, Nick, brought life to this guy, Grumpy Gary. And I think about Grumpy Gary a lot. He's an older guy who just is uh, very curmudgeonly. And, um, and he would say things like, you know, um, why do we even need to have kids doing homework on the internet? Shouldn't we just give them books and call it a day? And that's the way I was raised. And why why is it important that they be on the internet at all anyway? Well, in North Carolina, the General Assembly in 2015, you might need to check me on that, um, passed a that's law. That's the neighborhood, certainly. <laughs> <laughs> passed a law that... Uh, is moving all moved all funding that went to paying for textbooks to pay for digital learning. Um, so in North Carolina, there aren't printed textbooks being purchased anymore. And if there are some in schools, it's because they were purchased before the law was fully implemented. Um, so we already have moved to the point where it's become a requirement for students to have internet access to do their homework or to do their schoolwork within the the walls of the school. It's no longer a question of should they or should they not. It's already happening. And so the question now is, do we want to make it equitable? Do we want to make sure that all students can access the same resources in and outside of the four walls of the school? And we think that the answer is yes. And so we want to make sure that all students have the same access to resources. Right. I think think that's one of the, the things that really resonates with me is that not only is there a homework gap, but it's perversely 
growing in the sense that we would hope that these tools, these new technologies would be enable us to get rid of the old inequities to make sure that people had a fair shot. Absolutely. In some ways, we almost think it should be called the opportunity gap. You know, this opportunity gap, these tools that really uh, someone referred to them as they're the ultimate bootstrapping tools. Anyone can build a business now from anywhere. Um, I could build a business right here from my computer if I have the tools. Mm -hmm. And to make sure for millions of kids to not have those same tools that their peers have increases the already existing divide. Um, I was in high school when the internet um, became commercialized. I guess I was almost in high school, whatever. Um, (laughs) Who knows how old I was. (laughs) And, uh, but I remember in in 10th grade in particular doing a homework assignment, which I did this independent research on the internet to do this Mm -hmm. thing. And, um, you know, and if I had thought then and even going through college and, and again, still not many people were using the Internet, it was really starting to catch on then. Um, looking ahead, I would have assumed that this would have been this great leveling influence. And instead, it just seems that the kids who have the most opportunity are able to, to speed ahead. And um, and I know that we can do better. And I, and I guess one of the things that I'd be curious about is um, I felt like we would not be having this conversation in 2020. <laughs> you I agree. Know? I agree. Um, and so there's a part of me that just sort of wonders, like, in 2025, will we be done with it? I, I hope. I sure hope so. At least I I sure hope so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, hopefully at least here in North Carolina. But really, I, I have that hope for the whole country. Right. Well, I have to say that is when you see a room like this, this is a room that was filled with people. Um, I'm sure there's many people who are many more people probably who are streaming it online. Mm -hmm. Many more people will be watching it in coming days. There's a lot of attention that's being paid to this. And and I feel like the work of of people to highlight this over the many years, people like Angela Seifer, Mm -hmm. um, I think I I, I hope that we're going to take it seriously now. I th- I hope so too, and I do feel that we're at a tipping point. I think that there's more attention to paid to these issues now because they're so in your face. Um, mm-hmm. You can't avoid them anymore. Thank you so much for coming on, talking about the homework gap, and and I think also making sure that the states are taking these things seriously. And I think the research that you're doing, I hope we see a lot of other states copy that and, and, and adopt that approach. I hope so too. And I will just say for any state that would like to do research around this, we're happy to share our survey with them. We're happy to part, uh, walk them through what we did if they'd like any um, help with that. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this episode in our YNC Broadband Matters podcast series and for listening to the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Remember to follow Christopher on Twitter. His handle is at CommunityNets. And if you follow at NCHeartsGB on Twitter, you'll tap into all the NC Broadband Matters material. We want to thank Shane Ivers of SilvermanSound.com for the series music, What's the Angle? Licensed through Creative Commons. And we want to thank you for listening. Until next time. Mm-hmm.